0: This evening I'll go through some of the, what I can consider to be hidden gems. There's many hidden gems, hidden treasures in the Anguttara Nikaya, and a lot of little snippets of teachings here and there around training one's character and temperament. And uh, so i going to start by reading a few of those, and then I'll move into some Lomporo pot. These are about... Five or six short teachings from the book of the threes. Yeah, seven, seven different little suttas. So this is Sutta 107 called wailing. Because in the Noble One's discipline, singing is wailing. In the Noble One's discipline, dancing is madness. And the noble one's discipline to laugh excessively, displaying one's teeth is childishness. Therefore, bhikkhus, in regard to singing and dancing, let there be the demolition of the bridge. When you smile, rejoicing in the Dhamma, you may simply show a smile. The next sutta, 108, is called no satiation. Bhikkhus, there are three things that give no satiation by indulging in them. What three? 1. There's no satiation by indulging in sleep. 2. There's no satiation by indulging in liquor and wine. 3. There's no satiation by indulging in sexual intercourse. These are the three things that give no satiation by indulging in them. The sutta is 113 called Bound for the Plane of Misery. Because there are three who, if they do not abandon this fault of theirs, are bound for the plane of misery, bound for hell which three? One, one who, though not celibate, claims to be celibate, two, one who slanders a pure celibate leading a pure celibate life with a groundless charge of non-celibacy, and three, one who holds such a doctrine and view as this, there is no fault in sensual pleasures, and then falls into indulgence in sensual pleasures. These are the three who, if they do not abandon this fault of theirs, are bound for the plane of misery, bound for hell. And the next Sutta, 114, called Rare. Bhikkhus, the manifestation of three persons is rare in the world. What three? The manifestation of a Tathagata, an Arahant, a perfectly enlightened one, is rare in the world. A person who teaches the Dhamma and discipline proclaimed by the Tathagata is rare in the world. A grateful and thankful person is rare in the world. The manifestation of these three persons is rare in the world. And the next sutta is called immeasurable. Bhikkhus, there are these three kinds of persons found existing in the world. What three? The one who is easily measured, the one who is hard to measure, and the immeasurable one. And what bhikkhus is the person who is easily measured, Here some person is restless, puffed up, vain, talkative, rambling in his talk, muddle-minded, without clear comprehension, unconcentrated, with a wandering mind, with loose sense faculties. This is called the person who is easily measured. What is the person who is hard to measure? Here some person is not restless, puffed up, and personally vain. He's not talkative and rambling in his talk. His mindfulness established and clearly comprehends is concentrated with a one-pointed mind with restrained sense faculties. This is called a person who is hard to measure. And what is the person who is immeasurable? Here a bhikkhu is an arahant, one whose taints have been destroyed. This is called the person who is immeasurable. These are the three kinds of persons found existing in the world. Sutta 132. The line etched in stone because there are these three kinds of persons found existing in the world what three the person who is like a line etched in stone the person who is like a line etched in the ground and the person who is like a line etched in water and what kind of person is like a line etched in stone here some person often gets angry and his anger persists for a long time Just as a line etched in stone is not quickly erased by the wind and water, but persists for a long time, so too some person often gets angry, and his anger persists for a long time. This is called the person who is like a line etched in stone. And what kind of person is like a line etched in the ground? Here some person often gets angry, but his anger does not persist for a long time. Just as a line etched in the ground is quickly erased by the wind and water and does not persist for a long time, so too some person often gets angry, but his anger does not persist for a long time. This is called the person who is like a line etched in the ground. And what kind of person is like a line etched in water? Here some person, even when spoken to roughly and harshly, in disagreeable ways, remains on friendly terms with his antagonist mingles with them, and greets them. Just as a lion etched in water quickly disappears and does not persist for a long time, so too some person, even when spoken to roughly and harshly, in disagreeable ways, remains on friendly terms with his antagonist, mingles with them, and greets them. This is called the person who is like a lion etched in water. These bhikkhus are the three kinds of persons found existing in the world. And Sutta 135, a friend. Bhikkhus one should associate with a friend who possesses three factors, what three. Here, a bhikkhu gives what is hard to give. He does what is hard to do. He patiently endures what is hard to endure. One should associate with a friend who possesses these three factors. And then we have the sutta called a good morning. Because those beings who engage in good conduct by body, speech, and mind in the morning have a good morning. Those beings who engage in good conduct by body, speech, and mind in the afternoon have a good afternoon. And those beings who engage in good conduct by body, speech, and mind in the evening have a good evening. And there's verses, truly propitious and auspicious, a happy daybreak and a joyful rising, A precious moment and a blissful hour will come for those who offer alms to those leading the spiritual life. Upright acts of body and speech, upright thoughts and aspirations. When one does what is upright, one gains upright benefits. Those happy ones who have gained such benefits come to growth in the Buddha's teaching. May you and all your relatives be healthy and happy. Okay, and now I'll read from the first chapter in this book. Uh, o Wada, the exhortations of Longpu O Pad. It opens with a verse from the uh, ninth, His Majesty the ninth King, uh, King Bumipon of Thailand. The quote Buddhism comprises teachings to lead men to good conduct and is rich in precepts which are logical, highly impressive, and inspiring. Chapter 1, The Buddha. It was not easy for the Lord Buddha to finally realize Nibbana. For him to proclaim the teachings of the Pali Canon or the Dhamma Vinaya as we practice today, the Buddha endured many hardships and even underwent self-deprivation, such as extreme fasting practices. These took place not only in this present life, but through many rounds of rebirth across various realms of existence. In his last rebirth, The Buddha was the son of King Suddhodana and Queen Maya and was given the name Prince Siddhartha. He persevered through extreme ascetic practices to finally reach the highest attainment to become the Buddha. We should take him as our role model for patient endurance. Those who encounter and endure through obstacles will eventually be successful. Those who never encounter nor endure any obstacles early on in life will struggle with any difficulties that they meet with later on. We must really cultivate this understanding. The Lord Buddha himself had undergone tremendous hardships before he became the Buddha. Had he not been through those hardships, he certainly would not have become the Buddha. There would have been no Dhamma and no teachings available for all of us. But because the Lord Buddha had undergone tremendous challenges throughout his many past lives and during his final life, he ultimately succeeded. We must take him, our great father, as our role model for patient endurance. Many of you have little patience and few adversities. You must reflect on why you are not able to endure the practice. Is it because you tend to flatter your likes and dislikes or because of your love for freedom? This is damaging yourselves. Every day, your teachers tell you to do one thing, but you do another. They ask you to do this, and you do otherwise. This is because of a self-surfing bias that arises as a result of self-view, that's atanuditi, and personality view, sakaya-ditti. Patient endurance is at the heart of Dhamma practice. Most people want to attain something, but they don't want to put any effort into it. Whether it be education or wealth, they require patience and endurance. Patient endurance is thus very important. And without metta, patient endurance can't be practiced. Metta is, therefore, also important. In the Buddha's time, there were two chief disciples who are still well-respected today. They were Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Maha Moggallana who were regarded as the right hand and the left hand of the Buddha. Both of these chief disciples were born into Brahmin families. They had grown up together and were good friends. One day, they went to see a play. And while watching it, they experienced a sense of cool and sober dispassion, sung towards worldly matters. With their wisdom and capability, they came to the realization that everybody will die one day and that they could not afford to heedlessly squander their lives. Even as laymen, and not yet arahants nor monks, they were determined to seek out the deathless. Initially, they met the six heretical teachers, such as Makkali. These teachers were conceited and attached to their own views, and their various teachings did not lead to the deathless. At the time, the Lord Buddha was still practicing ascetically and hadn't become enlightened yet. It was only later when Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamogalana met the Buddha that both of them succeeded in their practice to become arahants. Venerable Sariputta was very polite and gentle, whereas Venerable Mahamogalana was rather sturdy and muscular. Venerable Sariputta was foremost in wisdom, whereas Venerable Mahamogalana was foremost in psychic powers. In one instance, during the time of the Buddha, there was a Naga king named Nandopananda, who was a fierce and raging serpent. Many disciples volunteered to go tame the Naga king, but the Buddha specifically chose Venerable Mahamogolana to do the job, which he finished in no time. The Lord Buddha carefully considered each disciple's unique disposition before assigning a duty. For example, whilst still alive, Venerable Sariputta was never replaced by another person for his particular duty. The Buddha used this same approach with Venerable Maha Moggallana and Venerable Ananda by assigning certain duties exclusively to them. I have also adopted this approach for assigning duties in the monastery because this is the approach of the Lord Buddha himself, not of any others. Venerable Sariputta was known to be very gentle and humble. According to the Pali Canon, When novice Pandita, Venerable Sariputta's disciple, admonished him for not wearing his robes properly, Venerable Sariputta adjusted his robes straight away and even thanked the novice for informing him. To be able to do what Venerable Sariputta did, we have to realize that we practice so that we can better ourselves first before passing our knowledge on to others. Venerable Sariputta practiced directly the path to the realization of Nibbana. Whenever he was instructed by the Buddha to do something, he would do so instantly. Once during the Buddha's time, when the Lord Buddha was reciting in a forest, the two chief disciples brought approximately 500 bhikkhus to pay their respects to the Buddha. While they were paying, waiting to pay their respects, the bhikkhus were chatting noisily. The Lord Buddha called on Venerable Ananda and asked, Ananda, What is that noise outside? It sounds like a gathering of fishmongers or street vendors. Where have they come from? Venerable Ananda replied, The two chief disciples have brought along a group of bhikkhus to pay their respects to the Blessed One. Then the Lord Buddha immediately dismissed those noisy bhikkhus. When the Buddha was asked for the reason why he had dismissed them, he said that those bhikkhus who were chatting loudly did not show respect or courtesy. Later, when the king of Varanasi came to ask for forgiveness on behalf of those noisy bhikkhus, the Lord Buddha accepted his apology. This was the way of the Buddha. The first wrongdoing can be forgiven. During the Buddha's time, when an issue arose, both carrot and stick approaches had to be used at the same time. Solely relying on either carrot or stick approaches would not have sufficed. This is the way of the Buddha. We should keep this in mind. In Thailand, the Pali education system is very well structured, even more so than in Burma. Unfortunately, we don't really apply the teachings to our daily lives. I have great respect for Somdet Pra Samana Krom Krompraya Vajira Jnana Waro Rasa, who lived 1860 to 1921, who was the 10th Supreme Patriarch of the Ratanakosin era of Thailand. He wrote many excellent books on Pali grammar. His morality, ethics, and virtue were also impeccable, therefore deserving of high reverence. Unfortunately, I never met him in person. There have been many such great monks like him. As far as I have studied the Pali Canon, I have never been able to prove any of the Lord Buddha's teachings untrue. The Buddha's insights or wisdoms are still very much valid in today's world. Constitutions, in general, do not last very long, but we could say that the constitution of the Buddha has lasted since its formulation some 2,500 years ago, is firmly established, and has remained unchanged. We should reflect on how strong and well-established the foundation of Buddhism is. No matter how much time has passed, not a single teaching has been amended. This reflects how true and thoroughly expounded the Buddha's teachings are. We have heard and learned about many great philosophers, but the Buddha is the greatest among them all. His views and approaches are unparalleled. We are blessed with such a worthy and revered one in whom we can take refuge. We should reflect on why it is that we do not take refuge in the parami of the Buddha, i.e., we do not want to remain in robes and cultivate the spiritual perfections. As monks taking refuge in the Buddha, his parami brings forth all the requisites we receive, food, shelter, robes, books, and many other things. He has laid down a foundation for the laity to follow so that they can develop wholesome qualities. The laity can make merit by offering things such as water, huts, sala buildings, medicine, or food. The Buddha has provided us with all the details of his teachings. Lay followers with unwavering devotion to the Buddha thus know the different ways to make wholesome merit, from small acts such as offering sandals with robes to large acts such as offering buildings, even toilets. What kind of foundation could be greater than this? This is something to really reflect upon. When we carefully contemplate, we will realize that the teachings of the Lord Buddha are unparalleled, Ever since he became the Lord Buddha, his teachings have remained and are still practiced. Even one single word coming from him is invaluable and undeniably true. Although there are many great teachers in the world, no one is comparable to the Lord Buddha. Now everyone must dwell in his teachings. All of us here take refuge in the Buddha sasana. The Buddha is our refuge, our shelter, and he gains our revered respect. If we make merit or devote ourselves to the practice, we may at least be reborn as a celestial being. If we seriously devote ourselves to the practice, we may take rebirth in even higher realms, or even, in this lifetime, become a stream enter, a once-returner, a non-returner, or even an arahant. Even if we don't reach a stage of enlightenment in this life, we can be confident that heaven awaits after death. And if, in our future lives, We make better progress in our practice. We will eventually reach a stage of enlightenment. Wholesome merit and skillful practice can bear such noble results. Some people do not have respect for the Buddha. To me, this is a bit unreasonable. It's because they do not understand the rationales and the true values of his teachings. We must develop mindfulness and firm conviction in the practice. As human beings, we all have accumulated enough merit to have been born in this world. If we continue to develop wholesome qualities, we will certainly reap the benefits. We should reflect on this carefully. Otherwise, it will be like the saying, one rotten fish makes the whole catch stink. There in this present life, and there is the next life. There is this present life, and there is the next life. How good the next life will turn out to be essentially how good the next life will turn out to be essentially depends on the parami we develop at present. It is up to us and nobody else. It does not matter how big or small our body is. The most important factor is the mind. Human beings do not live very long. Fifty years in the human realm are equal to one day in the lowest realm of the heavens, the Chatu Maharajika. So if you can live as long as 100 years as a human being, it only equals two days in the heavenly realm. You should ponder on how short our life is. We should only pursue good and wholesome acts. If not now, then when? Time is short, and our life is short. Human beings are considered the highest of all beings. We are capable of attaining enlightenment to become a stream-enterer, a once-returner, a non-returner, an Arhant, a Pacheka Buddha, or a Sama Sambuddha. Human beings can become anything at any level, a monk, a member of royalty, extremely wealthy, a vendor, or a farmer. Thus, taking rebirth as a human being is considered the highest kind. But as our life is relatively short in comparison to that of celestial beings, we must be diligent in cultivating acts of goodness. In order to not waste any time, the Buddha granted everyone the opportunity to cultivate wholesome merit as early as possible. The Buddha said that the minimum age at which a child can receive the going forth to become a novice is determined by whether or not he's able to chase away a crow stealing his food while he's eating. We should ponder on this. The Buddha has great compassion for all beings. In comparison to beings in other realms, we have a much better opportunity to make progress on the path to liberation. How long or short we will live is not the point. The important thing is that we, being born as human beings, do not waste our time. Time is indispensable. Time is running out. Wholesomeness and parami can be developed regardless of how young or old we are. Some people may praise and rejoice with people who live to a 100 years old. However, the Buddha said that one who lives to a 100 years old but never once practices well and rightly whether it be by studying the Buddhist scriptures or the practice of tranquility and insight meditation is not a worthy one. On the other hand, one who lives as a human being and practices well and rightly, even for one day, is a worthy one. We should contemplate this. We must cultivate understanding of the Buddha's teachings. We can't just do anything we like and be heedless. If we don't have sufficient dedication and determination, We cannot acquire knowledge. This has to be realized. It's like the book is there, but we do not own it. If we merely skim through it without examining it, we will not learn anything. Knowledge and learning must be acquired. It will not do any harm to us. If we put it to good use, we will benefit from it and live at ease. Not only in this life, but the wisdom faculty will also get carried with you into your next life, unless we become an arahant. I.e, that would be your last life. There are two kinds of people: a dubacha person who, one who is difficult to teach, and a Suwacha person, one who is easy to teach. In the Sangha, the Buddha made a distinction between dubacha and Suwacha contemplatives because dubacha contemplatives are a very heavy burden. No matter how much you teach them, or with whatever approach you use, du contemplatives refused to change, improve themselves, or practice. In the Buddha's time, these two kinds of people, du and su also existed. Su means good. Du means not good. In Myanmar, Du is considered stubborn, a slightly different meaning. So, du refers to one who does not listen and is difficult to admonish or teach. Suvacha refers to one who listens and is easy to admonish and teach. A Dubacha person does not listen to anything, regardless of how beneficial it can be to him or others. Such a person is difficult to teach, not because he does not understand, but because he's not able to distinguish between good and bad. This was the case of Venerable Devadatta, who was a cousin and a brother-in-law of the Buddha. Prince Siddhata was married to Princess Yasodhara, who was Devadatta's younger sister. Venerable Devadatta relentlessly aimed to demolish the sasana. If the Buddha said no, Devadatta would say yes. If the Buddha said, this is white, Devadatta would say, this is black. If the Buddha said, do this, Devadatta would say, don't do it. This was so even though he was no stranger to the Buddha, but his own cousin. Such a person as the Buddha would declare him Yatakama, one who follows his own accord, can't be helped. He created his own kama in this way. It's the way it is. There's no going up. There's only falling. He is falling into the lower realms by following his own course. Nobody can help him. That is what the Lord Buddha said. With teachers' persistent admonitions, however, some dubacha people can eventually turn acquiescent. But there are also those Dubacha who cannot accept any form of admonishment and are obstinate, acting in one way in front of people and another way behind their backs. To be honest, I myself find those Dubacha people very distressing. And we'll start at the beginning of chapter two, the Dhamma. To all of us, the Buddha said, Ajeva Kicha Mata Pang Kojanya Maranang Sue. Most simply put, we may die today or tomorrow. No one knows and no one can determine when. Death can take place at any time, any minute or any second. Therefore, we should do wholesome deeds today because no one knows if death is going to come tomorrow. When we die, all the wealth that we have accumulated can't follow us into the next life. Therefore, it is important to accumulate what is wholesome and develop parami, Be mindful that none of our accumulated wealth can be taken with us at death, except for the wholesome merit that we've generated. Even though this body is no more, the wholesome merit we have accumulated will stay with us. Nowadays, living beings are often engaged in unwholesome activities. In Thailand, as well as in other places, there are three places which shouldn't be crowded with people. One, police stations, two, hospitals, and three, cemeteries. They become crowded because people continue to cause trouble. When there's more trouble, there are more lawsuits and litigation. If there's less trouble, then there would also be less people going to the police station. In a similar way, our basic necessities, such as food in the modern world, are manufactured by such advanced technologies that they are no longer natural. They are synthetic, not true to their natural characteristics. Sometimes they may cause our body to deteriorate, whether it is through high blood pressure, low blood pressure, blood poisoning, or high cholesterol. These conditions are caused by unmindful eating or using highly synthetic products, which result in hospital admission. With more diseases and death, cemeteries become regularly crowded with funeral visitors, unlike in the old days when there were fewer diseases. My emphasis here is that at death, We are left with only the merit we have accumulated through wholesome acts while we were still alive. Other than that, nothing else can be taken with us. For all of us, the training of morality is of utmost importance. Some babies die right after birth. Some die in the womb before they are even born. Some are born to live only a short life and die young. These are results of transgressing morality in their past lives. One who does not observe pure morality has a shorter lifespan. When you die at a younger age, how can you find the time to accumulate merit and parami? The only place for those who transgress morality is to be reborn in a special place called the lower realms. Have you ever wondered why many elderly masters, monks in the northeast of Thailand live until 80, 90, even beyond 100 years of age? How do they live such long lives? By keeping pure sila, the Buddha says, Sukita, which means both physical and mental well-being arise from sila. This is critical, and you should observe this carefully. Take those masters as role models for keeping pure sila. It's gratifying that they live long and become a refuge for the sangha and faithful lay followers. They may not be as scholastic as we are, but they are highly revered for their righteous and noble practice. The Buddha says, Ajeva kicha mata pang kojan ya maranang suwe. Death may come tomorrow or the following day. Nobody knows. Knowing this, we must be heedful and start to do good deeds today. Realizing this again tomorrow and the day after, we shall continue to do so with a sense of urgency. Now is the best time because of human beings. As human beings, we have the best opportunity to accumulate merit and parami. If we don't develop the wholesome Kusala Dhamma, we will not acquire it. If other people don't do so, they will not acquire it either. Everyone, regardless of age, can develop Kusala Dhamma. Basically, any wholesome action, be it big or small, is considered Kusala Dhamma. Helping set out water for offering, cleaning, studying scriptures, chanting, meditating, and spreading loving-kindness, All of these are Kusala Dhamma. It's up to us to develop Kusala Dhamma. If we practice rightly, we can become good and noble. If not, it's impossible to become good and noble. I wish to see all of you following the teachings and taking them into your practice. That's my belief and intention. There's an old saying, He eats, he becomes full. We eat, we become full. He does it, he earns it. We do it, We earn it. I can only give advice, but I cannot practice for you. You have to do it for yourself. What I'm doing now is giving you advice to keep you from wrongdoing and from missing out on the opportunity to practice in this human life. This is why I regularly teach and give you admonitions. You must keep practicing well. If you become good and noble, then your parents and I will be happy for you. Everyone, especially yourself, will be happy. We've studied the Pali texts, so we are armed with the Dhamma. We must know how to use it. We have listened to the Dhamma, but sometimes we just don't know how to use it. This is similar to a soldier who simply wears a uniform and is equipped with all kinds of weapons, but does not really know how to use them. Why? Because he never practices. No matter how advanced the weapons are, if he does not know how to shoot, he will not shoot accurately. Always contemplate on the Dhamma. What does this Dhamma teach me? Or what insights does it trigger? How do I apply it? How do I practice it? Don't just read the text for the sake of reading. In the same way, when you're cooking food, you should know the tastes of the food you are cooking. It's dreary to eat without knowing the taste, just like a ladle in a pot of soup, which is to not know the actual taste of the soup. To live life is to know the taste of it. The ladle has no eyes, nose, tongue, or teeth. So it can't taste the soup. But we as human beings can learn the tastes of life by practicing the Dhamma to the ultimate, to Nibbana. Don't simply listen. Also reflect and contemplate on what you hear. There are many people who are highly educated with bachelors, masters, and doctoral degrees, but are spiritually incompetent. We hear the news of people who are trained as medical doctors but still hurt or kill people. This is an example of someone whom we consider not knowing the tastes of life, not having true knowledge, not having any dignity. Look at a dog. Even dogs have certain qualities and principles. They eat whatever or however much is given. They don't sleep late. They get up early. They've got good hearing and are sensitive to sound. They love their owner. They will defend their owner to the extent that they are willing to attack people. They are so brave that they are even willing to die for their owner. Dogs live by this very instinct. They've got good qualities, perhaps better than ours. Don't look down on them. There are things they can do which we can't. The most important thing is the mind. We must purify the mind and be upright. If our mind is not pure, we cannot do things well. Therefore, we must keep our mind pure and act from the heart. When you walk up to my hut, you always see a sign that says, The mind orders, the body acts. If the mind orders wrongly, the body acts wrongly. If the mind orders rightly, the body acts rightly. That sign was put up in 1994. It's our own mind that harms ourselves. The corrupted mind needs to be repaired, not the body. When some people don't wash their clothes or clean their toilet, think carefully. It's all because of the mind, not the body. We have to learn what is wholesome. The development of what is wholesome is conducive to merit, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration, and panya, wisdom. But somehow we don't like it. We seem to like dirty things. I'm the kind of person who speaks bluntly. It takes wisdom to cultivate what is wholesome. In the end, it's up to you, not anybody else. Wisdom can also be referred to as the right dasana, which means to see to see rightly, to see directly, or to see beneficially. Therefore, wisdom can be regarded as right view, samadhiti, and the wisdom of the Buddha is transcendental. We need to improve ourselves. Everything arises from the mind. We need to know the process and contemplate on what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Wrong intention, micha-sankapo, is not good. When we study, we should earnestly do so, When we work, we should earnestly do so. When we rest, we fully do so. Or we can divide our practice into three stages of life. Study is the first stage, work is the second stage, and nibbana-oriented practices as the third stage. If we become confused with these stages, we won't succeed in what we do. Whatever stage we are at, we put effort into it earnestly. I'll leave it there for this evening. Some of you have met him before. He's quite wonderful. Uh, Any questions, comments? Hi, John. Um, I wanted to know about a particular point, if I heard it correctly, but um, when in the sutta, when it was talking about the training principle around eating, sleeping, you also read it talking about uh, laughing. And I just wanted to ask if That's you could... uh, I don't know if I read anything about eating and sleeping, but it's uh, singing and dancing and laughing. Singing is and dancing, one. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to ask if you could expand a bit more about the, the laughing. Uh, singing is con- yeah. Singing is considered wailing. Dancing is considered madness. Laughing is in the discipline of the noble ones. Laughing is considered childishness. So that's uh, where the tradition in both Burma and Thailand and probably Sri Lanka as well of not, if if you laugh to the point of showing your teeth, usually you'll see monks cover their mouth. It's considered rude to like uh, show your teeth or to smile showing your teeth is considered rude. Usually when they would, like a, a monk would, a photo would be taken of a monk, like a formal photo, they wouldn't show their teeth. They might smile, but they wouldn't show their teeth in its silly or yeah, uh, so uh there is a note on it actually that uh it does talk about that idea of like um when there's reason to smile in rejoicing in the Dhamma, it's proper to smile merely by showing the tips of your teeth simply to show that you are pleased. So it's more like smiling out of uh delight in the Dhamma, but not uh and you know, uh one of the qualities of buddhas is that apparently buddhas never laugh they do smile though but uh you know you get somebody like uh i think our they they can chuckle and laugh a bit but they wouldn't be like oh, oh, like kind of like just like totally you know like a fisherman fishmongers hauling in a catch or whatever you know it would be uh might probably a little bit more subdued than that uh it does seem like maybe uh, in the West, that's a little bit looser than the the, the very strict Thai standard, and that you know gets some very nice guffaws from some of our very senior monks. Yeah, not losing control, of course, but you know some. Yeah, but then it has this different energy than just completely losing yeah, control yeah, with, with a, laughter, like drunk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Although Could when I when I first came here, I was highly critical of Por Pasanon. And I voiced it to them. When I saw them laughing, I thought the Buddha wasn't supposed. I thought the Buddha never laughed, and then they started laughing when I said that. Longpo uh, Pat, when he speaks, he's he's kind of. Uh, it's kind of hard to understand him, so a translation of his teachings would be difficult to do. Uh, so, because uh, he's he's usually. Chewing a large amount of betel nut while he's speaking, so you really have to live close with him or, or know know exactly how he speaks. But but uh, well, yeah, certainly a tremendous meta, tremendous meta, and uh, it's uh, quite quite powerful to be around monks like that. Okay, I think we'll end it there. Puja at seven.